Would you all stand with, uh, with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures? This is uh, Mark 15, 40 through 47. <clears throat> there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and the mother, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, and a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died already. In summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, we, we mentioned, I mentioned at the start of the service um, that it's Palm Sunday. And if that means anything to you, uh, or if it doesn't rather, um, that was the beginning of Holy Week, the week that marked the start of the last week of Jesus's life, at least before his resurrection, of course. Um, it, was, it was the day in which Jesus rode into the city in fulfillment of scripture on a donkey, and he was greeted, at least by some part of the city, with this rapturous welcome. They were calling him the son of David. They were saying, Hosanna, God save. This is the one who's going to bring about all these promises. Um, he was, they were laying palm branches down on the ground. That's where we get the word palm that he was riding over. People were laying their cloaks on the ground. They were dignifying Jesus with this royal entry. Well, we looked at that passage several months ago in the Gospel of Mark, and we've just been tracking through Mark, and now we've gotten to the second-to-last passage in Mark. We're going to finish Mark next week on Easter. Um, just in one week's time, less than one week's time, from Palm Sunday to the evening of Good Friday, you know, you know those memes? It's like how it started, how it's going. <laughs> you know, I should have got some of those. But how it started, palms, coats on the ground, welcome this king into the city. How it's going. Where, what are we going to do with his body? What are we going to do with his body before Friday ends and the Passover comes, the Sabbath comes, or the, uh, the Sabbath rather, and we're unable to actually do the work of dealing with his body. We have to do it quickly before the sun goes down and the, and the Sabbath comes. The way things played out with this would-be king, this would-be Messiah, there you go, Jeremiah, good work. You nailed it. Um, was not what people were expecting for obvious reasons. Jesus walks into the city and immediately he's getting in these conflicts with the temple leadership. We, we looked at all of those. And then eventually, on, you know, <clears throat> on Thursday, we, we've been slowing down. It's just these last couple of days that we've been in now for, I think, a couple of months. He's, he's in the upper room with his disciples and he's telling them, he's telling them in coded language, like, I am the Passover lamb. My blood is about to be spilled. My body is about to be given. And as with all of these death predictions, the disciples seem to be like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, anyway, what's the king? Yeah, let's get back to the kingdom stuff. Let's get back to the victory stuff. Let's get back to the, 
weren't, wasn't the plan here that we were going like, to kick Rome out of its occupation of Israel and we are going to restore Israel to its glory and all this stuff? And uh, Jesus predicts his death. He says uh, things like, you know, I'm going to be handed over to these, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be handed over to Rome, and you're all going to betray me. And his followers disagree. (laughs) No, we're not, Jesus. We're going to stick with you to the end. Peter says, even if I die, I will never betray you. Fast forward a few more hours. Peter has denied him three times. He's run away. All the rest of the disciples have fled. Uh, And then we don't have to belabor it, but we've looked in detail over the last two weeks. Jesus does go to the cross. He does die. He is tortured. He is beaten. He is humiliated. He is seemingly defeated. And so we get to this story. This story. And we have to imagine. I mean, it's hard to let the, the weight of this story hit us because even if you're not a Christian in this room, you know Christians believe Jesus raised from the dead. He ultimately had victory over death. But, but, but try for a moment to not let yourself go there yet and just wait in this moment with these people, with these real people, dealing with the fact that they just saw their would-be Savior, the one that they thought perhaps really was the Son of God, is dead. He's dead, and not just dead, but he's humiliated on a Roman torture device. So... In this passage, there are new, I mean, this is a deceptively deep and complex passage here, but I just want to point out four things we're going to go through very, very quickly. In this passage, Mark is highlighting for us a true death, true fear, true colors of his disciples, and true hope. So pray with me one more time, and then we'll take those each in turn. Lord, we need you. Father, it is so easy to come to a story like this and let it just just gloss over us. Or rather, we gloss over it, Father. We say, yes, I know this one. Yes, I know where this ends up. But Lord, we pray that this morning you would help us just understand, and not just understand, but be deeply moved and changed by the truth you've embedded in this ancient text, Lord, that your Holy Spirit co-authored. We want everything that you have for us here, Lord. Give us the eyes to see. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, true death. Um, This passage goes to painstaking detail to, to basically impress upon you and to me that Jesus really died. You know, sometimes, it's this time of year, I, I, we don't, like many of you, we don't really have cable anymore, we don't have TV anymore, seems like it's a thing of the past. Um, so I don't know if Discovery Channel or the History Channel are still putting out these wacky documentaries, but every Easter, they're like, we're going to tell you the real story of Jesus. And every time, it's something, it's like, somehow more absurd than Jesus actually coming back from the dead, you know? You're like... I think I just believe in the resurrection more now than whatever, if this is the best alternative you could come up with. Things like, I mean, one of the theories is that Jesus did not die on the cross. He swooned, he fainted, he passed out. It seemed as though he was dead, but he was actually still alive. And, you know, the disciples, you know, this Joseph guy was able to take him down from the cross. So what actually happened is that he, you know, somehow in a matter of hours, was able to clean himself up enough and appear to his disciples so that they thought he had raised from the dead. You can wrestle with that one, see if that strikes you as plausible. What Mark wants to tell you is that no, 
No, in every sense, this man died. These women saw it. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of these two guys, and Salome. Um, they saw him. They were watching. They saw the thing play out. Uh, when evening came, this other man, Joseph of Arimathea, he comes and he knows that Jesus has died. And he asked for the body and the language that Mark uses, the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised that Jesus should have already died. Apparently, Jesus died a little bit quicker than criminals typically did on crosses. Uh, and here, look, look at the validation here. So, so Pilate looks for his own independent verification. So he summons the centurion who was on guard at the scene of the cross and asks, did he really die? And the answer is, of course, yes. So Pilate grants the corpse. Notice that language corpse, body. there's a cadaver, there is a dead body. He's really dead. Shows the detail. Joseph gets a linen shroud, takes down the body, which I mean, this is, this is clean and concise language, but you can just imagine taking the body down from the cross after all we, we know about what happened up there. Wraps him, lays him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, rolls a stone. What, what Mark wants you to see, and he's, he's laying, he's giving eyewitnesses here that you could go if you were a first century reader of this text and you could go find them and you could ask them. He's footnoting this detail to say that this man really died. There's no sleight of hand, there's no trickery. Ask the Roman governor, ask the Roman centurions, ask Mary or Mary or Salome. He's dead, he died, he died. It's a true death here. And if it was a true death, then what we have to assume and what we, what we can easily assume is that it was true fear that followed. I mean, the whole story of the Gospel of Mark is about, yes, crowds, but then even just think about specifically the, the disciples that followed him for a long time. We've got the 12 disciples everybody knows about, and then these women here. It says that, look, Mark gives us this little biographical detail. When he was in Galilee, at the start of his ministry, they followed him and they ministered to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So there's this group of women traveling with Jesus, some of them possibly for three years for this whole public ministry, following him from town to town. They were his benefactors. They served him. They helped him. So this group, and then, of course, you think of the 12 following Jesus, giving their lives to him, sitting under his teaching, being empowered by him to do ministry. Again, coming to believe all of these folks that this man perhaps was the Messiah, the, the, the anointed king who was going to put everything right. And maybe more than that, maybe this was God in human flesh. And now he's really dead. Like, can you imagine, like, like, on this account, even, even though Jesus had said, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise again and I'm going to see you in Galilee again and all these things, nonetheless, and none of that stuff sank in and you have to imagine they thought here, this is over. This is over. In fact, if they were expecting something like a resurrection, why, is, you know, why would Joseph go and say, I need to bury this body and I need to do it before the, before the Sabbath comes. I need to actually get him, I need to give this Jesus the dignity that he deserves. There's true fear here. Everything that these people had built their lives around, their deepest hope had been shattered in the face of this corpse, this bloodied, disfigured corpse of the man that they knew and loved and were willing to stake their lives on, that he was who he said he was.
So we have, to, we have to let that angle of this strike us. There is real fear and real despair, real heartbreak right here in this moment. So true death, true fear, but also the true colors of some of these disciples. And, and, and Mark here, I think, wants to be provocative with us. And not because he's manufacturing the story. He just wants to highlight it in just the right way to let the surprise of this sink in. Mark loves doing that. Who would you expect to be the faithful few that are present, even in this harrowing moment of, you know, dealing with the corpse, the body of Jesus? Maybe Peter, the appointed leader of the twelve. Certainly the other twelve. Maybe not Judas at this point. We know he's, he's jumped ship in a dramatic way, but... Uh, if you were a week before, you'd think these 12 men are going to be the ones who are faithfully there, present at the end of the story, and they're nowhere to be found. Mark's already told us they all abandoned ship. The other Gospels, Gospels tell us perhaps John came back at some point, was present at the cross uh, for, for kind of a tender moment. Um, but at least at some point, they had all left, and the majority of them had still left. Maybe all but one. Who we have now present in this moment, the ones who were genuinely faithful are three women, Mary and Mary and Salome. Three women, and that might, be not, not, might not be too significant to you. In some ways, it's good that it's not. In 2013, we go, yes, of course, women can be faithful to Jesus and important disciples of Jesus. Uh, but to this culture in this day, they'd be like, whoa, what? What in the world? What kind of movement is this where the faithful few are women? We'll talk more about that next week when we talk about the resurrection and how Mark highlights these women as the key witnesses of the resurrection of the Son of God. But they're not who you would have expected. Second is this guy Joseph of Arimathea. Look who this is, a respected member of the council. What council is that? That's the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish uh, religious leadership made up of the Pharisees and the scribes, uh, the high priests, and so on and so forth. So Joseph, perhaps a Pharisee himself, perhaps a dissenter amongst the groups who were saying, we've got to kill this guy. This guy, this Pharisee, who've, who've been played up as sort of the, the number one villains in Mark's gospel, this man, at some point, evidently came to faith. This was a man, it tells us, he was waiting on the kingdom of God with sincerity. He perhaps saw in Jesus the Messiah as well. And he, at great risk to himself, goes to try to collect this body and to do it in quick time so that, again, he can do it before the Sabbath arrives. So we're left here, like, seeing who is actually still faithful to Jesus, and it's not who any of us would have expected. It's a Pharisee, a Pharisee, and three women. The other disciples, nowhere to be found. But then what we have here also is a picture of true hope. Because if there was genuine, I mean, there is suffering here and there is fear here, but if there was genuine hopelessness, these characters would not still be here. These women would not be watching. They would not be certainly the ones who in the next verse in chapter 16 we're going to read about were going to prepare Jesus' body. They were going to bring the spices to sort of treat it and it was a way to deal with the smell that was going to emanate from this tomb. 
um, they were still showing this tender, loving, concerning care. They're still present, even at risk to themselves. Joseph, he's preparing a tomb for Jesus. He's taking down the body. He's wrapping it. They're still hanging on to some measure of hope. And I think what's real, what's something that's really interesting about this text, and I think it's, it's true of all the Gospels, we're, in, we're, we're closing out Friday here. They're, they're racing, Joseph is racing against the clock again, Friday night, before it turns to Saturday, the Sabbath, on their time, the day, you know, it's the evening when the day turns over. And then most of the gospel, they don't, they don't even make mention of Saturday. So, so Mark is going to, in one, the next verse, chapter 16, verse 1, it's going to be Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, when the women are going to go to the tomb, and we'll, we'll read about that next week. But we have this whole day, this whole day that we now refer to as Holy Saturday, a day of silence. So it's, it's not just that, that Friday, the, the horribleness of Friday and the cross and the death of Jesus and all the stuff we've been talking about and now this moment where they're, they're going to deal with his body, but for an entire day, nothing happened. And I think it's so significant. It's so significant. What this tells us is that the cross... The cross does not, and even the resurrection for that matter, does not paper over genuine suffering and genuine struggle. The silence of Friday night into all day Saturday is agony. There is this long period of waiting for whatever was going to happen next, and they did not know what was going to happen next. But for at least a day and some change, there is just the agony of the waiting but what this tells us, what this passage tells us, is that though against all appearances, God is still at work in that silence. God is still present in that silence. To the untrained eye, which would be to every eye who encountered the horror of the situation, they would think, well, better close up shop, better pack this thing up, let's deal with his body, we'll find a new Messiah. Let's hope the real one comes around soon. This game is over. This story has finished. We've concluded. It was not so. God was at work in this moment. His plans had not been foiled. His purposes were not destroyed. Even in this moment, God is at work. God is preparing the world for the most unthinkable and glorious and hope-infused event that humanity had ever, has ever, will ever know in the resurrection of His Son. What these characters are doing in their agony is they're still just clinging onto their faith and their hope and their, their closeness, their relationship to Jesus. Despite everything to the contrary, they choose to still be faithful. And that's all I want to say about this story. That's all I want to say about this story. This, to conclude, the story of Good Friday and Holy Saturday reminds us that waiting and suffering and yes, even the silence of God are inescapable parts of this world. Now we now live, of course, on the other side of the resurrection. Jesus is raised from the dead, but we are still waiting. We talk about this all the time. We are waiting ourselves for the return of Christ. We are waiting for him to come back in glory and put things right and finally deal with sin in this world, in our lives, in the lives of our neighbors to put things right cosmically, to deal that one true, perfect justice 
that we all cry out for. We long for his return and we are waiting, friends. It's not here yet. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit. Thank you for reminding us, Vivian. The glorious reality. We're not left alone, but we are waiting. And there are days that feel silent. There are days of heaviness. There are days of agony. Every one of us in this room touches those things from time to time. Some of us very, very recently, we've been in the pit dealing with things that we will not deal with one day. But we deal with them now. We deal with them heavily now. We too can relate to these characters, these people in this moment because we're living, we live this moment so often, even this side of the cross because we still have waiting to do. The cross and even the resurrection does not mean that suffering is over in the here and now. If we have a sort of uh, you know, health and wealth or overly sort of cleansed picture of what the cross and what the Holy Spirit and what the resurrection means, we will not be prepared for the tragedies of life in this world. We just simply won't be. And I, I, as your pastor, I don't want to give you that false hope that trust in him in the here and now means everything just goes hunky-dory and swimmingly. People die. People suffer. People lose deep things that are important to them. You know, every one of the, the disciples who eventually did come back and led the early church movement, every one of them, we're told through tradition, died a martyr's death. They suffered mightily for following Jesus, even after the resurrection. The death rate is still one per person. Tragedy is still around every corner. Our bodies don't work the way they're meant to. Our minds suffer. Our spirits are so wounded. People are abused. People are damaged. People are wounded. The cross does not mean suffering is over in the here and now. But neither does it get the final word. If this was the end of Mark, Jesus, some guy, beautiful teachings, worth following to some, but he died. If he died, this would be a nihilistic story. Wasn't that a beautiful man who taught some wonderful things and then he was killed and he died just like the rest of us and the injustices and the oppressive systems and all the evils of this world, they stamped him out too. But it doesn't get the final word. We will rediscover next week afresh, hopefully. Sunday is coming. Easter is coming. Christ is coming. All these sufferings, all these periods of, of silence and longing and waiting and pain, and all of it will come to an end. The beauty of God will win out. The love of God will win out. The justice of God will win out. The grace of God will win out. The provision, the creativity, the resurrection power of God will win out, friends. So this passage is a deep challenge. And not just a challenge, but it's a reminder to us that despite appearances, and these appearances are going to come, there will be days, there are days when we'll think God is not in control, He's not, His plan isn't working, it's not going to happen. Is He even ever going to come back? We will all be in that moment, just like these folks. This passage challenges us to trust God's power, trust His plans, trust His provision, trust His purposes, despite those appearances. 
to trust in the power of God. Maybe one last thing this reminds us of is, yes, they've they've made their prep. Joseph is making his preparations here. He's got some work to do, but in the ways that really count, you know, Jesus didn't raise from the dead because Joseph managed to get him in the tomb in time or whatever. It's a bit incidental. There was nothing that any of these characters could do. Not the cowering disciples, not these women, not Joseph of Arimathea. There was nothing they could do to make the resurrection happen. They just had to trust and wait on the power of God. There was nothing for them to accomplish. God had to accomplish it. God would accomplish it. It was true for them and it's true for us, friends. So as we, as we contemplate this week on the suffering of Jesus, even this moment, the death of Jesus, the waiting, this, this agonizing period between being in the presence of Jesus before and after his resurrection. This is a call for us to hope. Not really to work, but to hope and to trust that whatever we see, whatever we experience, his plans will not be foiled. Amen? Let's pray.